Uh, hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Oh, you can clap for me again. Oh, that's great. Let's do it. All right. It's great. Uh, it, it is so good to be with all of you this morning uh, as we continue uh, in our journey through First Peter. And so I want to just dive right in. Uh, if uh, We'll read these, and if you want to follow along as we read these verses, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11, if you have your Bibles, to turn to that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, as one, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to, to worship in song and in dance. God, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be active and alive in us. Lord, we know that it is. Lord, grow our affection for you and for your son. God, we trust you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, um, uh, on, on first take, when I was looking at this passage, it seemed to me that uh, Peter, uh, this sort of a, a shallow impression, is like, ah, Peter's all over the place here. You know, I, I got to really try to understand this. And the truth is that when I approach God's word, you know, depending on what I'm reading, often my uh, posture towards it or how I receive it and the way I like to learn and all of that changes depending on what I'm reading. So if I'm, you know, I love to read the Old Testament and, and just see God's hand in, in, his, in history over how he led God's people through so much. I, when I think about when I read the Psalms, uh, you know, the, just incredible writings of worship, and it just brings my humanity into it, and I just feel, uh, you know, as I read, uh, you know, David's words or Solomon's words, just makes me feel human in the way that they just expressed what it was like to follow God in their lives. When I read the stories and the accounts of Jesus Christ, I'm just so enamored by how incredible our Savior is, the way, the way he would speak both to the religious and to the irreligious, the things that he did. That, you know, he was just, whether it was unexpected or powerful, and you know, I, I just it's incredible. When I read some of these letters after the Gospels, these epistles, I, I often experience this thing, and I'll just say it's just me, none of you have ever experienced this. That when I read it, I read the words, but like my comprehension is at near zero, right? You've never experienced, you know, you're at the restaurant, right? You've been staring at the menu for 15 minutes and the waitress comes and says, you know, are you ready to order? And you're like, I, I don't know what I've been doing. I'm, I think I've been reading this. But I don't know a single thing that you make here. I, I, I need more time. I don't know what, <laughs> is that, anyway, is that just me? And I know that often, like when I, when I sometimes I read these letters, the way that Peter or Paul, the other authors of these letters after the Gospels and the New Testament here, the way they would write, I would read them sometimes and I'd go through it and I would just go, okay, okay, I'm, I need to read that again. You know, I like, I don't, I don't know, you know, and, and it just kind of like slowed me down a little bit to say, look, when I approach even these just 11 verses, man, what's helpful? And, and, and instead of saying, okay, or what's here for me? 
you know, I think we, there is something here for us. But the reality is, I know that this letter actually wasn't written to me, right? It's, it, this is here for me. Man, who wrote this? And, and, and what, was, what was their heart in writing it? And who received this? And what was their heart in hearing it? You know, over these past many weeks and just listening and going through First Peter has been brought to us as a body, uh, just thinking about Peter himself. And it is just so clear that, man, Peter loves Jesus Christ. Amen? And he loves his Savior. You know, he was one of Jesus' chosen disciples and an apostle of God. Like, he just loves, loves, loves Jesus Christ, right? He's the one that's in the boat in the middle of a storm going, he's, he's like, I, I'd rather be out in that storm where you are, God, than in the safety of this boat, right? Jesus, I just want to be where you are. It's so incredible through the New Testament just watching his life. And he was a, he was a man with his, his eyes on heaven, right? He, he, he always thought about eternity. He had heaven in mind, and it affected the way that he saw his own life. It affected the way that he, that he spoke to others. It affected the way that he shepherded his flock. He had a deep affection for Jesus, and he was always thinking about heaven. He was always thinking about what was to come, and man, it just changed him inside and out. Man, that's Peter. And I think about the people that Peter was writing to, Christ had died, he had defeated sin and death, he had risen again, had ascended into heaven and left his Holy Spirit, and now the temple was no longer stones and mortar, right? The Bible says that the, the holy temple of God now was made up of living stones, right? Adopted sons and daughters of God, Jews and Gentiles were the presence of God, his presence in his people, right? And he is writing to the very first Christians, Man, I can just imagine how eager they were to hear from him and to be shepherded by him. Now, I imagine if I asked some of you here, like, hey, how many of you are just, you know, really passionate about the game of golf, right? Like, golf, it's just a huge hobby, great passion. Even if you're really bad at it, you love it, right? And I were to tell you, like, hey, look, I'm going to bring in somebody here who's got just all the know-how, Right? They've got all the skills. They're going to guide you and teach you and, you know, what to avoid, the right attitude to have towards it. They're going to work with you one-on-one. -on -one. Those of you that kind of have that passion, you're, you're, you know, you're going to be excited when I tell you who's coming, right? You know, pen and paper out. You are just so eager to learn. And we could just go on and on, different people, right? Like if you're really into cooking or different health issues or on and on. You would bring Gordon Ramsay or if you're really into finance, his brother, Dave Ramsay, you know, and... <laughs> And, and then he would come and boom, zing, got it. All right, so, but whatever it is, if I brought all these people here, Tom Brady, on and on, Joanna Gaines, you know, whoever it is, right? If that lined up with a passion that you had, like you just, you kind of lean forward a little bit, wouldn't you? Man, I'm so eager to hear this. And I, and I just think about who, you know, who Peter was writing to, man, what was their posture towards his shepherding? See, I think if we don't think about this sometimes, it is very easy for me to sometimes look at God's word as just this dry, like, religious text. Does that make sense? But man, what was the posture of those who were being shepherded by Peter? Were they on the edge of their seat, right? Their, their heartbeat a little bit elevated? Like, man, I just can't wait to hear what my shepherd Peter has to say. I wrote just kind of like a, just a little idea of what it must have been like for them. Listen. Someone walks in the room with a letter from their shepherd, their friend, and it's from Peter. Oh, God, they're so eager to open it, to have it read to them. The persecuted Christians huddle together in secret, their hearts heavy with fear and uncertainty. They had been driven into hiding by the brutal persecution that raged against them, and many had lost friends, husband, wives, children to the violence of their oppressors. In the midst of their trials, they clung to their faith, finding solace in the teachings of Jesus Christ and the guidance of the apostles. And when news came that Peter had written to them, their hearts leapt with anticipation and hunger. As they read the words penned by Peter's own hand, their spirits lifted, and they felt a renewed sense of purpose and determination. In this letter, Peter spoke of the suffering that they were enduring, reminding them that they were not alone in their trials and that they were called to persevere in their faith, no matter what the cost. He exhorted them to be strong and courageous, to love one another fervently, and to trust in the goodness of God, even in the midst of their suffering. 
The early Christians devoured every word of Peter's letter, hungry for the guidance and comfort it provided. They clung to its promises and its hope for redemption. Finding solace in the knowledge that they were a part of a community of believers that transcended all time and space. And though their hunger and thirst for freedom and justice continued to burn within them, they knew that they were not alone and that they could find strength in the words of the apostles and the love of their fellow believers. Can you sense the anticipation of those who gather together to be shepherded by Peter? And I think about myself as I read these verses. It's like, man, how, how can Matthew Vonstein, right? How can I begin to even, how can I posture myself in the same way towards God's word and towards Jesus Christ in a way where that this shepherding is profitable and useful for me in my faith? Because when I look at their lives and I look at my life, sometimes I, I am so humbled by the idea that I get to call them my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because my life looks so different than theirs. Our lives look very different than their lives, amen? But listen, the truth is that I do share things with them. Man, God, God, the enemy, the enemy was just using persecution to, to, to beat them down. And man, and they were just being exhorted and encouraged not to give in. Man, they, they had so much suffering in their life. And I realized that, man, there's suffering in my life too, but it is going to look different. But we will share in that together. But more than just sharing and suffering is that what I can share in is that what? It's just my desire to be like my Savior. Because that's really what led them to huddle together. That's what led them to, to, to grow uh, in their desire to listen to Peter's shepherding of them is that they wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to follow in his example. They knew that he was ahead of them and in them. And so in some way, they were experiencing the Holy Spirit and the gospel in such incredible ways. So as I... As I uh, posture myself. This is kind of the first point I wanted to make this morning, that even as we dive in here, when we think about Peter and we think about those who he was writing to, one of the primary things that I can share is that, man, as I come to God's word, Lord, help me grow in me a desire just to be molded like you, to be like you. I recognize that every time I come to church, I don't know if I come with open hands saying, like, God, I want to be more like you. Whatever you do this morning, I just want you to mold me like you. I don't think that every time Matthew Vonstein goes to, the, the, to God's word, I'm saying, God, I want you to make me like you. Mold me like you. So what is our posture towards Jesus Christ? In, in my notes, it still says, what is your posture towards his word? But I changed it to just what is our posture towards Christ? This idea, because if, if we are growing in our affection for Jesus Christ, as we look at him and the cross and the grave and him uh, crucified and risen, right? As my affection and faith grows. And by the way, that's something that just drives me to my knees. It's like, God, Lord, I, I need the gift of faith. Grow my heart for you so that as I read your word, that my primary disposition towards all of this is, I just want you to make me like you. Whatever you have for me here. What is your posture towards Christ and towards his word? Are you hungry to be like your savior? Do you come to him, his word, with a heart eager for shepherding? I think most practically, it drives us into prayer. God, I come to you with whatever desires and fears and thoughts and distractions. I come to you in a season of comfort. I come to you in a season of suffering. I submit all of this to you. I just want to be more like you. By your spirit and by your power, God, man, mold me to be like your son. One of the first things I think for us to learn is, man, what was the disposition of, disposition of those and the posture of those who are going to receive the shepherding? I think it's foundational. But it's not just our posture towards Christ. It's also our posture towards suffering. In the chapters leading to this, we've heard Peter exhort believers not to shrink back in suffering, not to sin in their suffering. We heard last week that Jesus Christ is an example to us in his suffering. He's an example to them and to us. Peter tells us to look at Christ and how he suffered. He didn't sin. He didn't try to avoid suffering. He didn't threaten others or lie to get around it. He didn't try to pay people back. He entrusted himself and his cause to his Father in heaven. 
Guys, I, I won't spend a ton of time here, but the point is, if, if, if you are new here this morning, man, I really encourage you, whether by going back to these previous chapters in 1 Peter and listening also to some of the sermons that were given here over the past many weeks, is that Peter often is trying to frame and give right thinking, right, and a right attitude towards suffering, and that's why it is just so foundational that we have, a, we have a, a healthy attitude and posture and a faith towards God molding us to be more like him. But here in the beginning of, of chapter four, Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it says, arm yourselves, right? Arm yourselves with what? He says, with the same way of thinking. Peter's saying, arm yourself with thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to arm myself? Well, it means... That, man, okay, so Christ suffered. He's my example. I am going to suffer, right? And he is my example of, how, man, how should I think about my suffering? And how ought I conduct myself in suffering? What do I do? And for Peter, say, he, Peter here to say, arm yourselves, it means that he knows that we have an enemy. Amen? We have an enemy. So he's like, arm yourselves with right thinking. We have an enemy that wants to use our suffering to lead us into sin, so we don't wait for suffering to come before we start thinking rightly about it. And what does Christ's suffering and my ceasing from sin have to do with one another? Do you notice that? Did that catch your attention when we were reading that? Anyone has, who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? What does that mean? Well, as I read different commentaries on this, it seems that theologians have studied this for quite a while, kind of go back and forth between two things. And they both kind of complement one another, but what commentary, uh, commentary people, I, I don't know what to call them, All right, what, uh, commentators, thank you, right? Um, <laughs> as they do the commentary fictification, okay, of the Bible, <laughs> basically what they're saying is that, look, we, we're not sure which thing he meant primarily, so did he primarily mean first, just by principle, that the Bible and the New Testament is flooded with the idea of that I am dead to sin and alive in Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? This idea that I have been crucified with Christ, that I share in his sufferings, that part of what it means to be a Christian is a co-sufferer with Christ. And so Peter very well may have meant by principle right, that through the cross and through an empty tomb, right, death no longer has any sting, right, death wears your sting, right, that, that sin has been defeated. Did he mean it in principle or did he also just mean it practically, that in the life of a believer, if a believer is willing to suffer for the sake of his or her faith, for the sake of righteousness, willing to suffer for what is right in faith, right, is it a sign that sin has broken its hold on their life? Does that make sense? Peter absolutely does not think that if you have suffered in your faith, you are now perfect, right? And he, Peter also knows that not, not every moment we suffer always makes us more holy. How many of, he, how many of you here through suffering only grew more bitter? Through suffering only grew more angry? You see, but Peter seems to imply that as we suffer for the sake of our faith, for the sake of righteousness, for the, sakes, for the sake of God's glory and Christ's beauty in our lives, man, that this could mean that, the, that, that sin has lost its hold in my life. What we see throughout 1 Peter is this idea that suffering, I'm sorry, I moved my mic. It was scratch on my beard. But this idea that we see through 1 Peter is that both the, the pure and the impure can live together. And when suffering comes, the, 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 when the fire comes, the pure and the impure are separated from one another. You, 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 there's so many folks who write about the idea of the refining processes of metals, right? You're trying to refine silver, right? And as you bring fire to silver, the dross, the impure is separated from the pure. And we see that in the way that Peter writes about suffering in the life of the believer, and the idea that is, as we walk as Christians, we don't always know the other allegiances that we have in our life that are going to come at ends or intention with our faith in God until suffering comes, until the fiery trial comes. Meaning that when things are good and that when times are good, our allegiances to God and our allegiances to other things can often live together. 
And some, often what we see is that we don't even know uh, how we've given our hearts, our purpose, our worth, our value to other things until those things are either threatened or taken away from us, right? But when suffering comes, when the trial comes, and, and your allegiance to, to beauty, your allegiance to success, your allegiance to acceptance, your allegiance to whatever it is, right, comes at ends with your faith, where you're at a fork in the road, where I have to choose my faith and God's righteousness and beauty in my life is also the thing that's going to cause me suffering. And so the pure and the impure in suffering and in the fiery child begin to separate. And Peter wants these Christians to know that, man, when the fire comes, when you're at the fork in the road, by God's power in your life, man, choose. Don't avoid suffering. Use Christ as your example. He did not shrink back away from it. He, man, he, made, look, he made God look beautiful in his obedience, even if it caused him to suffer. Peter wants us to arm ourselves with right thinking towards suffering, to encourage believers that they, with the Holy Spirit, are tougher than they think they are. And when Christians choose to suffer for their faith, that they are given a depth of soul and joy that nothing on earth can give us. It makes Christ look beautiful to the world. I saw written this incredible example of, you know, this, the theme of this is stand firm. And another pastor was talking about how Christians standing firm in their faith, even if it causes them to suffer, are like stones, you know, in a creek, right? Standing firm. And what is the beautiful noise that the water makes over those stones standing firm, right? And the, the, the idea is that to the world, and this is what Peter was talking about earlier in First Peter here, is that to the world is, is in our witness, right? That as Christians stand firm in their faith, even if it causes them to suffer, it makes a beautiful noise to the world, to God's beauty and power in the world. So not only what is our, our posture towards Jesus Christ, but also our posture in our suffering. Does it cause you bitterness? Certainly it causes us pain and grief and it turns our lives upside down, but do you know that it can never destroy you if you are in his hands? And again, when we feel like we don't have the affection for Jesus Christ that we wish that we had, the, we just go on our knees, Lord, give me faith. God, grow my heart and my desire for you. And in the same way, when suffering comes, I think it just drives us into what again? Into prayer. God, it is, it, you know, I don't think Christians are ever you know, sticking their chin out saying, yeah, hit me. I just can't wait to suffer, you know? No way. I mean, when suffering comes, it's awful. And it drives us into prayer and it drives us into fellowship. Lord, teach me how to make you look beautiful in this. Teach me how to obey you in this. Peter says, use Jesus as your example. Give me strength to choose my faith over fear in this dark valley. All right, point three. Not just our posture towards Jesus Christ, not just our posture towards our suffering or attitude towards these things, but also he wants us to arm ourselves with right thinking towards our sin. He encourages us to be committed to the sake of our suffering, for the sake of our witness, but also for the sake of our battle and commitment against sin. So a posture towards his word and suffering and now an attitude towards sin. I love Peter's words here. Listen again. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, the beginning there, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I love that Peter knows that he is talking to a group of Christians, Gentiles and Jews, first century Christians, that participated in all of these things in the world, and he's just going, it's enough. That's enough. Right? And again, they're not really, remember their posture towards him? Remember their eagerness to listen to him and to be shepherded by him? Right? They're not going like, oh, here comes Peter with a list of things I'm not allowed to do anymore. Right? They're just like, they're like, say, shepherd me. Teach me. And he's going, it's enough. He, he's encouraging these believers, like, don't be passive against sin. It's enough. And if we were to poll 100 Christians, right, we would get a lot of different responses in each individual's willingness uh, and passivity or resolve against sin, would we not? Maybe some of the questions you might ask is saying, like, hey, after my conversion, after I have been saved in, in Christ and I have surrendered my life to him, how much sin do I need in my life, right? Or how much sin should I accept in order to get along in the world? And Peter's going, uh, none, 
He's like, it's enough. I, you know, it was just a couple months ago, my son Adam, it was awesome, I wish I could tell you the whole story, I won't, but, but just one of this beautiful, beautiful moment where my son randomly comes downstairs while I'm working and just comes over to the desk, my desk and goes, Dad, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? And he's seven years old, and that would lead, after a, a while of talking to my son, it would lead him to giving his life to Christ right at my desk in our basement. It was awesome. Yes. Yeah, it was so sweet. It was awesome. I had just the Holy Spirit was moving in his heart, and he came downstairs and talked to Dad. It was incredible. What an incredible gift. How much sin does my son need in his life now? Peter's saying, none. Whatever sinning your little seven-year-old has done up until this point, that's enough. That's enough. Now, of course, I know that there will be sin in his life, but Peter is saying, look, we've got to grow in our resolve against sin. There's a degree to which Peter knows that some of this passivity towards sin, right? He's saying, look, don't, to these Christians, he's like, don't look over your shoulder to what you gave up to have Christ and long for it. I think sometimes what, what happens with Christians is that we still believe that the world has the keys to real joy, to real pleasure, to real satisfaction, right? And so we just get angry at God, for, you know, in, in our walk with him. It's like, ah, it's just so many rules and so many restraints and boundaries, you know, this idea, I mean, if you've been a parent, you have no excuse for not understanding this, right? How much in our love and our parenting of kids, like, don't touch that, that's going to be hot, okay? Like, you know, I know you're drawn to the flame, but that's going to burn you, right? Or like, hey, it's time for you to go to bed. It's time for you to get up. Don't hit your brother. Like, well, like on, on and on and on. How many times have just, you know, you're, all of these things you do out of love, right? That's three pieces of cake is good. You know, you're going to get sick if you keep going, right? Like, as a, as a parent, we know this. And what do our kids always do is look at us and shake their fists and go, you're the worst, right? And you just go, no, man, I love you. And then we just turn around and go to God, you know, in, in, the, in the ways that he loves us and guides us against sin. And we just go, you're the worst, you know, you know? It's like, no. It's like Peter's saying, stop looking over your shoulders to what the world, they don't have the keys to joy. They don't have the keys to real satisfaction. They don't have the keys to real pleasure and celebration and all of these things. I mean, look at how redemptive it is to see these young ladies dance for God's glory on stage. We have to stop believing that the world has these things. And I think Peter is increasing the resolve of those who he's listening to. He goes, man, that's enough. The idea of God's love and guidance, the, the, the idea of sensuality, right? Sensuality is just this unrestrained, just giving in to whatever our bodies and our minds are telling us to do. It's, un, it's just without abandon, feeding all of the desires that our body and minds just kind of throw up against us. And he's saying, look, it's enough. You have a good, good father who loves you. And it is, a, it is a Christian as a witness to the world, not in judgment to the world, but in a witness to the world. Man, it's through Christ that I actually see the beauty of family. It's, in, it's, it's through Christ and the fullness and richness of sex and marriage and celebration and work and money and conflict. Man, Christ is meant to redeem and bring beauty to all because they're his idea. And so it's in him. And I think Peter is just saying, look, I know that there are temptations for you to look back over your shoulder and long for those things that you used to do. Hey, it's enough. It's enough. In other parts of Scripture, it says, like, don't, you know, don't be like a dog that returns to its vomit and calls it good. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote it down. I had to, it's there. <laughs> you know, I talk about this in young life sometimes because, you know, parents can be confused about why a you know, why a, a, a mentor can have such a tremendous effect on a young person's life, you know, because, a, um, you know, the, to the degree to which mom or dad might say, hey, you know, look both ways before you cross the road, and it's like, shut up, dad, you know, and then a mentor says, hey, look both ways before you cross the road, it's like, oh, thank you, <laughs> you know, I really, I really, but, but like, kid, kids' postures towards their parents is often sometimes our posture towards God, which is like, you know what, I just need to experience getting hit by a car, I just do, and like, and I, and I, I, I won't trust you until I experience it. Look, I've had both Christian and non-Christian parents tell me. I've been in youth ministry for 10 years. I, I don't know if I really want my son or daughter to go to a Christian college because I just there's some things I just think that they need to experience. You know, there's just things, mistakes that they need to make. And, I'm, and Peter's going, no, nope, no, no. <laughs> it's enough. You guys get it. Listen, when we think, look at the, look at the pattern here that Peter talks about, okay? He said, uh, living in sensuality, 
passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking. Now, when we read some of these things, right, most of us, I would imagine, go, well, some of this is irrelevant to me, right? But look at the pattern here. The idea is that this, with giving in, right, without abandon to our, to our senses and whatever our minds and our bodies throw up. And mind you, these desires, right, it's not so much that they're like, well, these are, you know, bad desires that have to be, as much as like they're misaligned desires, right? And he's saying what happens when these desires are misaligned or they're going to the wrong places for them, this idea of orgies and drinking parties is what? Others join in with you in your sin. Do you see? Like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly feeding my, my desires and passions in a way that's unhealthy and now I'm doing it with others. Do you see how this becomes more dangerous now? Because what happens when you surround yourself with people around your sin is you begin to embolden one another in your sin. You encourage one another in your sin. And because you're human, you begin to actually be growing affection towards the, the community that you're building around what? Around the, the beauty of Christ? No, around, the, around your obsession with your body and the pleasure, the sensuality. You, you grow a community around your sin. And then what happens is the worst thing. He says in lawless idolatry is that now I've given so much of my life to this sin. I've, given, I've thrown so much of myself at this without abandon, without restraint right, is that now all of my worth, my value, my purpose, this is, it's, it's become an idol to me. And it's way, whether implicitly or explicitly, we say to God, that God, I, I'm going to find my value somewhere else. I'm going to find you my worth somewhere else. It's just dangerous. And you see, when, when, when pastors and preachers get up to talk about sin, it, you know, we're, we're full of disclaimers when we talk about sin. Well, why? Because no preacher wants to get up here and say, look, you need to grow in your resolve against sin. It's enough. Whatever sinning you've done up to this morning is enough. But then the desire of a pastor to say, but listen, the, the, the goal isn't to send you here. Hey, may the guilt be with you, right? <laughs> go, you know, go in guilt, you know, and share that with the world. No, so what, is a, what does a pastor do is we start talking about what? God's grace, right? And saying, look, this is not a, this is not a war that you fight alone, right? Don't beat yourself up. The, the whole message of the gospel is that perfection's already been given to you through the person of Jesus Christ, right? That God's righteousness is on you. So when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. But when we talk about grace, Right? We also, you know, say, well, but listen, but don't grow passive towards your sin either. And I, I read this really great, just simple analogy of these different boats, which is like our different postures towards sin. And actually, not just towards sin, but just our posture towards God's grace and our involvement, our effort, like our effort versus God's grace. The one is kind of called like the wrath mentality. And when I talk about it, you can kind of say, in this season right now, where do you tend to lean? I don't think this is something like, you know, like you're, you're born a raft or like, but in different seasons of life, whatever's going on, like we may tend to lean in these different ways for, for comfort or for whatever it is. But the, the raft mentality, you've heard the raft mentality before, let go and let, right. Look, wherever God takes me, I'm fine with it. I'm going to just kind of kind of float on the current of God's grace. If he wants me to tackle this thing in my life, you know, he'll challenge me with it. I'll, you know, he'll take it away right? If, if he wants to lead me somewhere, he'll lead me there, you know? Like, it, it's just like, it's all God's grace, and what is there none of? There's no effort, right? There's no responsibility to meet God in, in this battle. It's just the wrath mentality. Let go and let God. He's got it, right? And how many of you seen people in just in, in the depths of sin where if the attitude of like, ah, God will just remove it for me? <laughs> he might not, like, let's go. And right in the other attitude is just this, the rowboat mentality. When we come to Christ and we go, okay, give me the list. What do I do? Right? Okay, what sins do I? And we just start rowing, right? And basically, all of our spiritual growth is not just something of primarily of self-effort. It's all self-effort, right? If I'm going to grow, it's going to be because of me. I'm going to go to church every day. I'm going to stop listening to this music. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to read every book. I'm going to be, right? And it's just row and row and row. And the problem we know with both of these mindsets, and particularly with this rowboat mentality, is what? Well, if I get it right, it goes to my head. And I just pat myself on the back. I am a good Christian, right? And we t even Phil talked about weeks ago, talking about looking at others with other faith and judging them for their, for their lack of faith and being like, man, they're just not rowing as hard as I am, you know? So when we get it right, it goes to our head. But then what happens when we fail? And inevitably, we fail. It, it goes right to our hearts. And we go, I can't do this. 
I tried, I did my best, I, the, I tried to lead the direction, I couldn't fight against the current, I didn't go where I thought I was going to go, and I failed. See, it's all effort and no grace. And we live in this tension between this raft and the rowboat. And this imagery that I was reading about said, well, what about the sailboat? Now, disclaimer, I know nothing about sailing. There are some of you here that, as I articulate this, are going to judge me because I know nothing about sailing. Just chill, all right? Now, okay? So, but like, the, the, like I, I have been on a sailboat, but okay? So, but this idea of a sailboat is what? Man, there's a lot of work to do, is there not? You tighten the rope, move the sail, capture the wind. There's tons of work to be done. And you enjoy it and you love it. The joy of sailing, the joy of capturing the wind. But listen, you only move if God bl blows the winds of his grace. And it's trying to live in this tension in our posture towards sin of saying, man, I, I have to have a, a deep understanding of God's grace that I'm never gonna go anywhere without his hand. So that, so that in, my, in whatever successes or beauty that God brings into my life and to bring my faith, it doesn't go to my head. It just goes into my worship of God. And when I stumble and when I fall, I'm not going to be a masochist and just start beating myself over it and breaking my heart and calling myself unworthy, right? Instead, it's like I'm going to just trust God in this, right? But it also means that I'm not going to be passive towards my sin either. And I'm not going to be passive towards my spiritual growth in Christ. I've got to be active in this. God's winds are blowing and I'm just laying around on this boat. And look, sometimes God's wind can blow so hard that he moves you a little bit anyway. Right? But the idea is that, man, it's just, you, you see the tension between these two things? It's a sailboat mentality. It's like grace-empowered effort. And I believe that Peter is bringing that here to just his listeners. Just saying, look, have a resolve against sin. And then we, look, I think we have a responsibility as believers to have right thinking about our sin as we come in here on Sunday mornings, right? Because otherwise, our, our pastors have to constantly spend so much time with disclaimers so that you don't leave in guilt and that you don't leave passive with your sin, right? We've got to come in here ready to fight, but in full view of God's sovereignty and grace in our life. A sailboat mentality. I, I want to be quick here with some of these other verses right afterwards, but I just think they're important, so, uh, but I'll be short with them. Listen, Peter goes on to say that the world will malign you for not joining in on them, and here's the point. The world loves a well-behaved Christian, right? Feed the poor, help the, you know, uh, love the widow, right? Uh, adopt the orphan, um, you know, obey the law, you know, submit to the authority. All, all of these things that God calls us to as, as believers, for the most part, right, a 10,000-foot view here, the world does not mind a well-behaved Christian doing these things. What the world cannot stand is when you refuse to join them in their sin. And so as that happens, Peter is saying the world is going to malign you the, 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 uh, the NIV, if you have that in front of you, says they will heap abuse on you. And Peter is saying, look, don't wait for it to happen to know that it's going to happen. And, and for it to signal to you that maybe you've done something wrong. It's like, hey, listen, I, 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 I just, I know, I know that there's so many that accept that. Oh, I know that there are even a lot in the church that accept this, but I just, I just can't, I, you, you know what I mean? And then what happens? It, it, the people receive that as what? As judgment on them, that you won't participate and they malign you. Don't be surprised when the world heaps abuse on you for not joining them. And yet Peter is saying, look, be resolved against sin. Look, and I, and I wanted the, to um, uh, pause here for just a moment to say, you know, I'll hit that in a second. I want to hit this other verse. I'm getting distracted. Peter, Peter goes on to say, listen, um, is that we, uh, we ought to be comforted by the idea that God, what? He, say, he says, be comforted, though, because God is going to judge the living and the dead. And here's a question that you can ask, and it depends on, I think, your, your, your season of life, what you've gone through, uh, and all of that is, is it okay for me as a Christian to be comforted by the idea that God is going to judge the evildoer, right? That he is going to judge every sin. I think we have different reactions to that. When we think about those who, who don't know the Lord, who have done all, all, just like us, who have sinned and all of that, it's like, man, am I supposed to be comforted by the idea that God is going to heap judgment on them? And I realize the, the more and more that I've just talked to fellow believers, I just know that, man, there are, there are folks even sitting here this morning 
that, that you have had th- things done to you, evil, evil, unspeakable things done to you. There are those who have been abused and hurt just by wicked acts of men and women against them. And then you realize that. that you're like, man, I just have not had a lot of issues in my life where I, I am just like seething for retribution and justice against someone. Does that make sense? So then my attitude toward this can sometimes be like, ah, come on, ease up, right? Just to realize that, that I mean, you just, again, you think about those who heard this. I mean, what has happened to their families and to their lives that they were persecuted for being Christians by the Roman Empire, right? Do they want to pray for Saul of Tarsus? who's drugged their spouse out of the house and killed them and persecuted Christians? Or do they want to pray for him? Oh, my gosh. And Peter is saying here, look, you have to entrust all judgment, all retribution, all of it. Just entrust God with it. Give it to him. God isn't saying to, to kill your sense of your desire for justice, your desire for sin, you know, for wrongs to be righted. No way. But he's saying, man, just bring it to God. Give it to him. Submit that desire, you know, to repay evil with evil, right? Just submit that to him. Because the beauty of the gospel is that if we can submit all sin and all abuse and all wickedness, we can submit the judgment of that all to God. Because here's the reality. All sin, mine and the world's, right? All sin will be judged by God. It will either fall on the sinner or on a savior, And the beauty of the gospel is if I can trust in God, it actually allows me to pray for the salvation of those who have abused me. It allows me to pray for the blessing of those who have hurt me. Not because I'm some pacifist who doesn't believe in justice, but because I believe in a good God who is justice. And he in one day will wrap up all wrong. All tears will be wiped away. Everything will be, will be made new. I can pray for those who the world wants me to hate. And the idea isn't that Christians don't have righteous anger, that we don't have these things that come up in us as we see the brokenness and the lunacy of the world. But the beauty of a believer, man and woman, is that whatever anger comes up in us, you know where we go with that first? We go to God with it. And we say, God, what do I do with this? As I look at the brokenness in my life, as I look at the brokenness that that has happened to me, the abuse to me, as I look at the world and the abuse on others, Lord, it it just brings up this anger inside of me. I think the believer just goes to God and says, like, what do, what do you, how do I use this anger, Lord, to make you look beautiful? How can I be obedient in this, God? I'm cloudy right now. I'm cloudy, God. Help me. Oh, help me. The only other note I had on that is that you guys understand that we live in, in an economy that wants to keep us angry. Do you believe that? We do. And I would just say, Peter says, he says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be sober-minded. The world wants to keep us angry. The world wants us to hate those that we should be praying for. So be careful. Be sober-minded. What is your posture towards sin? Have you grown lazy or passive? Peter wants you to make war against sin in your life, to run the race, to throw off every, rate, uh, every weight and sin that entangles. It's enough, Peter says. Be resolved against sin. And this is what I, what I said I, I would hold off on, is I just wanted to pause for a moment and just to say, there, if, if not all of us, there are at least some of us here where I want to encourage you that there is something, I know even for me, that there are things in our lives, sin in our life, that we have grown passive towards. And I hope that you will hear from your shepherd Peter, it's enough. It's enough. Grow in your resolve against sin. Become militant towards it in grace and effort together. Sailboat mentality, right? A theologian said, an ounce of sin is so much more destructive to your soul than a hundred tons of suffering. Suffering is not fun. Suffering is not good. But man, God uses it to create a depth of soul. Man, sin just hardens us and embitters us. Be resolved against sin. Cut off his path. Oh, here it says this. In Romans, it says, you should make no provision for the flesh. 
John Piper wrote, you know how the enemy approaches you. Cut off his path before he gets there. Block him before he arrives. Don't walk along the precipice where you know he pushes you over. Get out over the river before the current surges towards those deadly rapids that he's drug you through so often. And again, in this, what? We're led to what? To pray. And I think in our battle against sin, we, 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 how, what, uh, what a part of our testimony is it that we realize that we come at our faith just assuming we have so much willpower and then when faced sometimes with sin, we just realize like, man, I have so much less willpower than I thought I did. And it just leads us into prayer. God, I need your spirit. I need your strength to help me fight against this sin. Not just so that I can check a box, but God, I just want to make you look beautiful in my life. I want to enjoy you. And all this sin does is destroy our posture towards Christ, our attitude and our posture towards suffering, and our attitude towards sin. This, I think, was Peter's heart in writing these 11 verses to those he listened to. And lastly, in this final chunk, he says... Above all, it says that we are to be sober-minded and we realize over and over again that our only hope is in Christ and when we have hope, it takes us to our knees and Peter says that out of that prayer, what we ought to do above all is love one another, hold short accounts with one another, dispense and steward whatever gifts and grace God has given to you for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Open your homes, grow in your hospitality towards one another. If you have money, give it away. If you've been graced with talent, share it. If you have been graced with a skill, look for ways to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ. In every season and as life changes, never stop stewarding. I love that. Stewarding God's grace to one another. Do you see that picture of God? God gives you grace. He gives you talents and skills and resources and time. God gives it to you. And Peter's instruction to you is saying, look, your responsibility is that when you are given this grace by God, you are to steward that grace. Where? Keep it it here? This is for me, right? He says, no, you're supposed to steward it for one another. That's, That's why you're a steward of God's grace. Man, God has given me all, you know, and what I love is it says here in chapter four is each of you has been uniquely given God's grace in a way that makes God look beautiful. And he's saying, man, in any season, give it away. Each has a gift. Each is unique. God God made manifest in you and through you in a way that is totally unique. And then he says, don't grumble. I love this. When loving your fellow Christian is hard, do it anyway. I think sometimes we come into church, like we have this idea of like, it'll just always be easy to love one another, right? It's not. You know, sometimes you walk in, you know, the 9 a.m. and you see someone, you're like, I should have gone to the 11 a.m., you know? (laughs) But Peter says, look, don't grumble. When it's hard, do it anyway. When opening your home inconveniences you, do it anyway and don't grumble. When giving your money away changes the financial trajectory of your life, do it anyway. When giving your time away seems impossible, do it anyway. Because look, what Peter has already said in previous chapters is, look, when the world sees you suffer, Christian, when the world sees you suffer for the sake and the beauty of Jesus Christ, it makes God look beautiful. It's, it's a part of your witness. So then why is Peter here saying that it's so essential that like our posture towards Christ, our posture towards suffering, our attitude towards sin, and now this attitude's towards one another, why? He's saying above all, love one another. And listen, he goes, don't grumble when you do it. Because listen, the world has no categories for a Christian that would serve and suffer. Because the world is looking for you as you serve and suffer to be like, where is it? They're watching you. They're like, they're just wait because they're trying to connect and like, like how could you possibly open your home in this way? The way it in, your house is dirty and they're, when you've said goodbye to your guests, they're watching you to, you know, to, to, to grumble and to complain with one another about how hard it is to love and to serve. But the beauty of a Christian is, and this is why Peter, what, in the beginning, right, he always has his eyes on heaven. So the idea of a son and daughter of Christ is they grow in grace and they dispense that grace to one another is to say that, man, my eyes are in heaven. So my house is dirty, but I have heaven in mind. I'm not going to complain about this, right? All right, so I have a little bit less money because I've given it away, but my treasure's in heaven. 
You see, when, when, when a Christian has his, his or her eyes on heaven, right, it doesn't mean that we're not inconvenienced. It doesn't mean that, we're, that it's sometimes not hard to love our brothers and sisters in Christ or that we go to our knees to learn how to love those that we hate, right? But when the world sees this and we refuse to grumble, it, again, it just points to heaven. It points to God. And there's no categories for that in the world. And all it does is lead them to go, how are, what is this? And that's what even I thought about. I mean, if you're here this morning, you know, th- this letter was written to believers. That's how we started. I mean, if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I hope you know that the place for you to stop was, is, is within the first couple words of this chapter. It says, since therefore Christ suffered. And I would just encourage you that as you look at, at the, the lives of these first century Christians, as you look at, your, at, at these Christians to your left and to your right, that you see th- these texts, right, these texts are not just empty religious texts. It's not just a list of things not to do or things to do. That none of this makes any sense if it's not for a living temple of sons and daughters of God that are wholly wrapped up and wholly just obsessed with their father, with, with, their, with Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's only ever been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus forever. And I think sometimes we come to these things and it's like, okay, no more drinking parties. That's what it means to be. Oh, you know, what a shallow takeaway from this. It's, it's all about Christ's beauty that led all of these people together to huddle together just to look at their pastor Peter and to read this letter and to go, oh, God, guide us. We just, we just want to be like him. Teach us, give us, help us arm ourselves with right thinking towards suffering and towards sin and towards one another. Why? So that Christ may be glorified. And so that's how I want to end this this morning is with how Peter ended these 11 verses. It says, in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In each of these attitudes, I hope that you heard from me that it often just drives us to what? It drives us to pray. In my faith and my affection for Christ, in my dealing with suffering in my life, in my resolve against sin, and my desire to grow in my stewardship of grace to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think all of it leads us to pray. And so this morning, if there's any morning for you to be encouraged, there will be pastors and elders up here this morning after we worship. Man, if you need prayer, In any of these things, gosh, I encourage you to come forward in prayer. Guys, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to speak to you. Um, And like Peter said, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's worship together.